Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Mito, joined as always by Chris Bougay. Hey, Chris. You ready for more uh, for more Disney stories, Rachel? Let's do it. Okay, so if you're just listening to this episode, the previous episode was an entire episode talking about my experience at Disney and making correlations to to our work. Um, and we ran out of time. We actually had to run, do a presentation in Vermont. And so we're coming back for a little bit of part two before we get into the interview today. Because there's just a few more points that I wanted to talk about, a couple of other experiences that happened that I wanted to share with you and everybody else, Rachel. All right, I'm excited. Let's go. Okay, so if you remember last time we were talking about um, scavenger hunts, we sort of ended with scavenger hunts, and maybe I sang a little song at the end if you got it. (laughs) Um, But uh, I was talking about how scavenger hunts can be like a fun professional learning thing and and how it can be a fun way to engage learners and and there's a sense of discovery and wonderment and how it can be a layer on top of the the existing world sort of like augmented reality is you know and I know you've done some work in augmented reality in the past um, and so it's just fun but there's one other little point I want to make about the scavenger hunt is that um, at one point, I was doing this Pirates of the Caribbean scavenger hunt. Remember, I was talking about how I used uh, the Google app to translate the maps from Portuguese to English. And uh, my wife actually w- went off to uh, go get some ice cream. And she's like, the line was long. Chris, you're enjoying the scavenger hunt. Go do that. I'm going to go stand in line for it. No, I'm gonna, I'll stand with you. No, no, no. You go do the scavenger hunt. I don't really care um, about missing one or two of the, the little experiences. So I'm doing the scavenger hunt. And as uh, the way the Pirates scavenger hunt works is that you go up to these you find these hidden things right and then there's some sort of animatronic and some sort of audio that plays um and so you scan your badge and sure enough this this animatronic happens like uh you can imagine there's like little fake rivers throughout Disney, you know, if you scan this thing, a skeleton pops up out of the water and it's, its jaw moves and you hear this audio and eyes light up, you know, or in the bushes behind one of the gates, there's a, a boat that's flipped over and it just looks like a prop, you know, like this to help give the, the, the ambiance of Pirates of the Caribbean. But when you scan your badge in a certain place, you scan your, um, your magic band in a certain place, the boat flips over and there's a tr- pirate treasure underneath and it's like, aha! Ah, you found the treasure, right? Anyway, um, I, again, I nerd out on these sorts of things. I'm like, that. I, you could have walked by this a billion times and never known that there was like a hidden little feature. And I love that sort of thing in professional learning. I love that thing, that sort of thing for learners in our schools. I just love it. So I'm there at one point when Melissa walks away and uh, there's this uh, conch, this giant conch cell, or you know, I guess it's more of a clam shell, not a conch cell, uh, off in the distance. And again, it's closed, and it just looks like this prop. And uh, right where you have to go scan your magic band, there was a uh, woman uh, in one of the scooters that I was mentioning last time, and probably her granddaughter. I'm making a leap there. They could have been aunt and or something. There could have been friends. Who knows, right? But it looked like grandma and little kid, maybe six or seven years old, maybe a little older. Let's put them at 10, 10 years old, right? And they're blocking the thing. So I'm like, all right, I'm, just, I'm not going to stand here like a creeper. I, like, I don't even have my wife with me. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm closing in on 50 years old and I'm just going to stand there and look at you. And I, but I want to get to this thing because I can't do the scavenger hunt until you move. I'm like, well, I could go up and say, excuse me. And so I eventually like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. I'm like, excuse me, I, I need to get to that thing. And I like point back there to this. Again, it looks like a pile of box, like a pile of 
boxes. So you wouldn't even know what this thing is. Like, why do this stranger need to get past you to get to this box? And so the the grandma person's like, oh, okay. And she scoots out of the way and I kind of slide by and I just look back at the little girl and I go, um, you want to see something cool? And I hit the band on the little marker and sure enough, it opens up and there's this pearl inside and the girl's eyes like go wide. And she's like, wow, you know, because again, she's now into something that very few people in the park see, you know, this sort of special, special, you know, and, and the reason I bring that up is because uh, later on in this, uh, I'm going to talk about another experience where, uh, you know, I like to, oh, we've, we've mentioned on this podcast um, a couple of times where I've, I, I'm never right. I'm never sure what the right social thing to do is. What's the right social? And so there's another event coming up. But this one, it seemed to work by just inviting myself. I wasn't too, didn't come off as some, you know, creepy stranger coming up in this little girl, you know? But I feel that way. Like, is that how they're going to see me? Anyway, I just thought it was the, 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 the educator in me loved seeing the expression on this little girl's face of wonderment and excitement when she discovered something new, you know? Which I feel like is so important when we're thinking about communication opportunities, right? Like this is the kind of thing that we need to be designing for our students to have those communication opportunities. And it's like, it takes a little bit of extra effort but like that extra effort is so profound, especially when we're thinking about kids who have complex bodies where communicating is challenging. We have to do extra great work to kind of inspire communication from them and um, in them. And I feel like that's exactly what this was, like this aha moment um, where you're able to kind of get such joy and you know i'm sure she was just like so excited yeah i think that is a strategy we can lean into a little bit more uh we always talk about the predictability you know uh of a, of a classroom or a learning learning space but that sense of discovery and wonderment you know like and so and as therapists and as educators we can totally do that where we hide something and, and then the sense of discovery when either they find it or we find it and we're surprised and shocked and then that is just a it's just a such as it's just a pure moment you know all right so then we had some other experiences that i want that i want to tell you about so um uh this is more of a personal one i don't know that i'm making a connection to anything here later but i'll just share it with everybody is that uh on the podcast you know my kids have been on the podcast in the past sharing different things or telling different stories and actually they've been a big part of our of the podcasting life if anyone followed me back in the at tips cast uh days or when melissa and i were doing actively doing nightlight stories they were a, a part of um of those podcasts so in some sense there are people that have been following along with my kids at been growing up. So I just wanted to celebrate with everybody that my son Tucker got an early admission to Virginia Tech. And uh, we were pretty excited about that. That happened while we were at Disney. We were all sort of nervous, like, well, is he going to get in? And, you know, it's a pretty competitive program. And what happens if he doesn't get in? Because there wasn't a lot of backup plans. And um, there we were at Disney and got that magical, the most magical moment was getting an email from Virginia Tech saying you got in. So I just wanted to share that with everybody was really, and share it with you, because I don't know that I even got to tell you about about that. I mean, we put it on social media, but I don't know that I got to explicitly tell you about that, that we were pretty excited about it. It's amazing. And I feel like it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a perfect place to have such a exciting thing happen. Right. Like, so yeah. Congrats, Tucker. <laughs> All right. Now here's the next little bit of 
weirdness that I want to talk about. Okay. Now at the time of this airing, we will know who, who has won the Super Bowl in 2023. Um, but right now, as we're recording, we don't know that, right? We do know that the Buffalo Bills have um, won their first playoff game, beating the Miami Dolphins, but we don't know if they're going to win against the Cincinnati Bengals. That's right where we're recording. Is that fair, Rachel? We're also recording in a time where the Philadelphia Eagles play the New York Giants, and... Mm-hmm, I, I I am I am going to anticipate them winning. <laughs> We're not it only talking be. about the Buffalo Bills, Chris. Okay, we have a Philadelphia Eagles fan here. <laughs> it could be an Eagles Bills Super Bowl, and it'll be Madel versus Bouguet, and that and then so we'll see what happens. But um, there's this phenomenon with Bills fans, and maybe it's Eagles fans too. I don't know. It's a it's something that happens with Bills fans. So I'm walking around Disney. I know what happens with Bills fans walking around Disney and occasionally you find somebody that's wearing a Buffalo Bills paraphernalia, a shirt, a jersey, a hat, something like that. And what we do as Buffalo Bills fans, and as you're walking past, you can see my hands are up, right? As you're walking past each other and I'm moving my hands past each other, if someone spots someone in Bills gear, you just sort of yell out, you go, go Bills. And to anyone that doesn't know what you're talking about, it probably sounds like Goebbels, Goebbels, because you don't really, but to the, those in the know, if you're a Bills fan, you know, and the, then what you do back is you go, go Bills. So it'll be like, it'll be like this. I'll, I'll go, go Bills. Go Bills. Exactly. And you don't even make eye contact necessarily. Chances are you don't even know who said it. You just walk by. And so this happened at least three times to me. Um, not that I was wearing Bill's stuff, but I knew the protocol. So if I saw somebody or sometimes Tucker would do it, go Bills. And we would just say it. And that other person would recite it back, go Bills. And one time <laughs> we were in a, in a crowd, we saw somebody, we were passing somebody to go, go Bills. And they go, go Bills. And a third person out in the, in the, in the crowd yells out, go Bills. And before you know it, we got a little chain going with people yelling, go Bills. No idea who these people are. Don't know them. You don't stop and talk. And the whole thing, why I wanted to write it down here on my list of things to talk about and chat with you about is one, it feels like delayed echolalia, <laughs> right? Like, um, it's not it it is a phrase together that has a shared meaning there is no sort of written protocol of this is how you act somehow people just from this part of the country who are this fandom know to do this thing and i don't know how it developed i don't know how it became this social consciousness but it is a very interesting way that we interact it's a communication for sure, right? Um, it's an interesting way of using language, how the words go Bills, not uh, go Buffalo Bills, or, you know, is it, it's a very dis- distinct phrase that we use. Um, and that and, and it's shared, you know, it's a shared communication experience. So I don't know, first of all, is it just a go Bills thing or do you have an Eagles thing, you know? Oh, it's go Eagles too. It's like a, it's a shared, I think maybe football experience and everything you said is on the mark. You definitely don't stop. You don't continue the conversation. You don't even necessarily need to make eye contact. You just see Eagles. I see my Eagle and I'm like, go Eagles. (laughs) And sometimes it feels random. Like you're on a hike and you're like, Hey, go Eagles. (laughs) Yeah. And, and 
but by seeing it, I, I feel compelled to do it, right? Like it, there's this connection that happens. There's a sense of belonging. C- clearly low hanging fruit here is uh, as feedback for the podcast is if you're a football fan, make sure whatever your phrase is, is programmed in so that that it, no one's left out of that experience. You know, what's so funny is that uh, a past interview we had on the podcast, Chris Saka, Um, is a big he's in Chicago so he's a big sports fan and I'm sure he's using a lot of you know phrases and things like that when he's communicating and I know that he'll sometimes post when any type of Chicago team plays a Philly team he starts talking trash on Facebook and tagging me and I love it I love it so yes this is a friendly reminder to not forget about sports teams and to include that type of language on a student's AAC so they can participate all right in a similar vein um I'm a fan of Dungeons and Dragons. Again, you know this, right? And I've shared this on the podcast, done presentations with people on uh, using role-playing as a strategy for teaching all sorts of skills. Well, there is one particular um, group called Critical Role. Now, have you heard of Critical Role? Does that sound familiar? Have I told you about it at all? Have I mentioned it at all? It sounds familiar, but refresh my memory. Okay, so... Uh, out in California, there's these voice actors, they get together, they play Dungeons and Dragons, and uh, they get asked to, um, hey, can you record it and make it a, a streaming thing? And they're like, oh, I don't know, should we? Yeah, we do this. And it has been blown up in the tabletop role-playing space so much so because they're they're voice actors right so they can they the emote when they're role-playing and but they're playing the game you know and it's like a four-hour show that comes out every thursday and in fact that's one of their taglines similar to like go bills their tag one of their taglines is is it thursday yet because they play most thursdays and they stream most thursdays it became so popular um that they uh because they're voice actors that work in animation, they pitched a um, like an, creating an animated special, and it was the largest entertainment Kickstarter ever. Uh, beat out Mystery Science Theater 3000 was the one previous to this. Now, again, why am I spending my time explaining this? Well... They because it was the largest Kickstarter ever, Amazon Prime uh, entertainment one ever, Amazon Prime partnered with them and produced a series. So it's out on Amazon Prime and the animated version that they have taken their their D and D game and is now an animated show. Um, and in fact, today season two came, comes out. The day we're recording this, Tucker sent me a thing. Dad, are we watching it tonight? I was like, you know, we're watching it. Okay, but again, what does this have to do with the podcast, Chris? Where are you going with this? So there's this community of people that know critical role that um, buy their merch you know what i mean and all of a sudden we're walking through disney and maggie goes dad 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 it's a critical role shirt right there that guy's wearing a critical role shirt and so because again you're in the know i go up to this guy and i walk by him and i go hey excuse me can i ask you a question is it thursday yet and the guy busts out laughing because now it's like we're in this club that only a couple people know you know but then we saw a second person that had a different Critical Role shirt later on in the day. So we were at Disney for five days. We saw two Critical Role shirts. And, of course, I made the same joke, you know, uh, and, again, had the same re- reaction, this laughter from people. And it's like, oh, you watch it? Me too. Okay. And it wasn't the same Go Bills like you just walked by. It was a little bit of a, a you know, talky talk about D&D. Okay. So five days at Disney, saw two Critical Role shirts. Okay. Now, just think what that means. There's a population of people that that listen to Critical Role. 
there's a smaller population of people who buy the merch, the shirt, and then there's a smaller population of people who would wear it while they're at Disney, right? And I saw two of them. And so I just want to put that in context. Here's where I'm getting. I saw in five days, guess how many AAC users I saw? Zero? Zero, exactly. Which was uh, why I'm making that, con that, that contrast is how much work we have to do, right? How much far we've come with so many more people using it and introducing it earlier. And I saw so many people riding around on scooters using, uh, using technology to help them move around. But as far as actual AAC users, zero. But I saw critical role shirts. Do you know what I mean? Like, it just hit me like that population uh, is, is probably pretty small and I still saw too. So we have some work to do to, to get AAC out there into the sphere of more people knowing about it and seeing it. I would have expected to see at least one AAC user uh, in the parks, you know, come across them. And, and, and maybe they were there and I just didn't see them, but I did see two critical role shirts. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And your eyes would be more tuned in to AAC than most eyes. So it feels like especially surprising that you didn't see anyone. Yeah, right. I'm actively looking, right? Yeah. <laughs> Where are the AAC users? Okay, so two more things and then on to the interview. Okay, I promise. So the next thing that I saw, and I just want to chat about it with you, but get your impression, is I saw somebody wearing a hat, a knitted hat. In fact, you know, we have knitted hats and my, my buddy Matt made us uh, some so for our team, the, the talking with tech hats with the, with the um, embroidery on it, right? Well, I saw a hat, some uh, probably a teenage kid, 18, 19 years old, wearing this black hat with what was embroidered on it was specifically this phrase, I have autism, please be patient. That was embroidered on his hat. And I saw that. I had some mixed emotions about it um, because on one hand, I was like, oh, look at you advocating for yourself and you know, communicating in a way to people to let them know to be patient. And on the other hand, I was like, why do we need a hat to help people know they need to be patient? You know? <laughs> and so I was just wrestling with that emotion. I don't know. When I say, if you saw somebody like that, what would you, what would you feel? What were your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, my first reaction was like, oh, like, why do we need to have a hat to tell people to be patient? But then I had the same reaction. Like, you know, I mean, it's helpful to give context. Um, I think that one of the challenges with autism is that it it looks very different, you know, depending on the individual. And um, I know that a lot of families have shared that with me is like, you know, he doesn't look like he has a disability necessarily. And so like people don't understand when he is screaming and not responding when they talk to him and things like that. So you know, the part of me that like recognizes how challenging that can be, um, understands why a hat would be useful and necessary, um, especially in a context where there's lots of people and, um, yeah, to kind of safeguard those potentially negative interactions that could happen and just being aware. But yeah, it just feels like, again, we have a long ways to go in the work that we're doing with advocacy and acceptance, um, and things like that. So 
mixed emotions over here. Um, that's exactly how I felt. And that's why I wanted to just talk about it and get people thinking about it and reflect with you for a second on it. Um, okay, one last experience. Um, and that is on the last day, or maybe the second to last day, um, everyone had, had uh, Melissa had said, it was just Melissa, the kids and I, grandparents had gone back to the hotel. Um, Melissa was like, I'm beat guys. I'm going back to the hotel. The kids and I were like, couple more rides, dad. And so, yeah, we did a couple more rides and they were like, all right, we're out. And Melissa and I were staying at a different hotel than the kids were. So the kids went off to their own place and I was walking by myself at night, well, I don't know, nine, 10 at night, whatever time the park was closing back to the hotel. I, I think I may have even tweeted it out that we had at that point done the equivalent of like two and a half marathons, right? So um, the amount of walking we had done. And so I just needed a break and I just sat down just to rest and flip through my phone for a few minutes and I'm sitting there on the curb and um, this kid comes and sits down next to me, 14 years old, Down syndrome. And uh, he sat next to me and his grandmother was there. Uh, again, I'm making the assumption grandmother, someone of, the, of, of older than him, um, and she was on her phone. And, and so we're sitting there next to each other. And this was one of those moments where it's like, I sort of wanted to strike up a conversation with the kid because because in my head, I hear people saying like, just say hi, right? Just say hi. That's what you do. You just say hi. Hey, how's it going? But if it was any other 14 year old kid, if he didn't have Down syndrome, I, I wouldn't like, I wouldn't talk to him. And I, like I said earlier about the clamshell story, I'm in my head about closing in on 50 years old like i'm sitting there in the dark by myself you know but it's at disney you know what i mean like so i, I and uh joanna would give me such good feedback from a parent perspective what to do so i didn't you know i just sat there on my phone and i didn't say anything but i sort of did wanted to be like hey dude what was your favorite part of the park you know it's the end of the night what'd you see you know i just sort of wanted to strike up a conversation and i didn't i held it to myself and so i'm just curious you're there, your feet are sore, you're flipping through your phone. Do you say hi or do you not say hi? What what is what's your what would your what would your reaction be? What do you think you would do? It's a good question. Um I don't know if I've ever shared this on the podcast of how I got into speech therapy, but I had a moment where I was witnessing a little boy with special needs being bullied. And I had this moment of like mama bear. I was like, don't you talk to him like that? Like, you know, at a time in my life where I was not super, I was kind of passive. I was afraid of confrontation more so than I am now. Um, but anyway, afterwards, the mom came over to me and she was like, thank you so much for kind of sticking up for my son. Like bullying is a big problem. And she had her son there with her. And I had this like very epiphany aha moment where I just felt super drawn to this little boy and I don't really know why but I just wanted to talk to him I wanted to play with him I just felt like this connection to this little boy that I barely knew and the reason I'm sharing this is because well first of all then I like ran upstairs and I was like I have to work with kids with disabilities and I totally like changed my trajectory from journalism to figure out how I could be some somehow, you know, working with students with disabilities and landed on speech therapy. But the reason I'm sharing this story is because I feel like, and maybe you can, this resonates with you, Chris, and many of our listeners out there. I feel drawn to individuals with disabilities and I want to talk to them. Um, so I think I probably would have said something. Um, but again, thinking about the feedback that Joe gave us, it feels like very complex. It's not as straightforward as you might think. Um, so I don't know. 
but I think that I would feel drawn to have the conversation. And I think that it's because I feel a connection to people with disabilities. And that's why I do the work that I do. And that's why I'm so passionate about it. Mm -hmm. And and I mean, I can't disassociate the fact that I'm, like I said, almost 50 years old and a a guy by himself sitting there is different than you there, right? I mean, I I feel like it would be, right? The grandmother might look at me completely different. Like, why is a guy alone at Disney, you know what I mean, Um, at 10 o'clock at night, not knowing that I just left my family, do you know what I mean? And the kids are walking the other way, you know, it might be different if Maggie was sitting next to me, you know, similar of age and where we all struck up a conversation. Um, So yeah, that, that could be a component as well. Uh, and yeah, if it was a kid that was, if it was just, if the, if I didn't see that the kid w- had Down syndrome, then you're right. I I might not have even, I wouldn't have necessarily even thought to say something. Do you know what I mean? I would have just been like, yeah, they might really think I'm a creeper. Do you know what I mean? So, um, so yeah, because of that, because of the work we do and the, the, the experiences we've had and, um, there's a there's a different question that maybe we asked are in our in our brain that other people don't you know and a draw that we have that other people other people don't so um yeah it's also hard for me to turn my slp brain off so it's like i was having a conversation with a friend and they were talking about their niece and i was like how old are they how many words do they have and then i'm thinking oh my gosh like that's not enough words like what do i do right now like do i say something yes of course i have to say something so it's like i think it's just like my nature to want to help and also i'm just like this is the work that we do this is the work we're passionate about and so i find it hard to kind of turn that part of myself off yeah yeah for sure i don't remember if i talked about it before but um i remember having an experience on an airplane where I, where it was similar and i was like i'm just gonna pull out this aac app and i'm gonna start to play with it and see if they are, get interested in it you know like it's always not you it's you i don't know that it's possible to just turn off that part of your brain you know uh, it's just part of who you are it'd be like you know um sorry don't smell things do you know what i mean like yeah well i can't help not smelling things you know so but exactly. we can at least talk about it and rationalize it and and uh and thank you for the opportunity one for everyone listening but for you to to give me the opportunity to to share about these experiences and have a place to to work them out you know what i mean because i'm not I'm not always sure what the right thing is to do yeah no i i think it's good and helpful probably for all of our, all of our listeners too. Cause it's like, we don't always think about these things and it's like reflecting and hearing, you know, us kind of go through our thought process, I think is probably helpful for people. Well, speaking of reflecting and getting people to think about um, their own practices and what's, what's going on within their, in their world and in their profession and in their practice, I feel like that's what's coming up just in a few, in a few minutes here, right? Yes. So I had the opportunity to have another coaching call with Sarah Lockhart. So Sarah is the co-host of the SLP Happy Hour podcast. Um, So she came to our pre-conference last year at ATIA, Chris, uh, which I was super excited to have her all day with us teaching all about AAC. And she um, has become a a friend of mine. And she reached out and she was like, I need your help. And I was like, I'm totally down. Can we record this? (laughs) Can we share this? with you know our, our the world because it's her questions are super relevant i'm sure a lot of you guys listening totally resonate with Sarah and the challenges that she's having with a couple of her students and some questions that she's asking herself. So, um, yeah, this is a coaching call that I did with Sarah Lockhart all about AAC and helping her students who she finds sometimes challenging to 
kind of figure out what's motivating and figure out how to get, you know, teams on board. We talk about coaching and uh, how do we select the right types of activities and following the student's lead and all of those things. So I'm super excited to share this interview I did with Sarah Lockhart. Welcome to the SLP Happy Hour podcast. On this episode, I had a coaching call with SLP Rachel Middell. She walked me through some ideas for a student I have who seems stuck at requesting and not using other communicative functions using AAC. I'm Sarah, a private practice SLP working in Oregon, and currently I'm trying to learn as much as I can about AAC as my caseload of students who use AAC has increased. Okay, so this is a question about a student I've only been seeing for a couple months. He came in with LAMP, Words for Life. He's five years old. He's not in kindergarten yet. He goes to ABA about 35 hours per week. And I feel very much like we're stuck in requesting and we're stuck with lots of prompting. What does he like? He likes trains, lining them up and looking closely. He likes being in the swing and swinging back and forth. And he likes like playing on an exercise ball, like kind of rolling on his stomach back and forth. So sometimes I'll set up blocks and he'll knock them over. Uh, words he's using kind of unprompted. Words he has used unprompted with me up in trains a bunch of favorite foods for snack time, open, my turn, and your turn. And in a 30-minute session, I may get one or two uh, one or two utterances that are unprompted, and everything is requesting. And I have LAMP on my iPad, so I'm able to um, model, you know, social comments. Uh, he also loves taking things in and out of boxes. So like, I'll be like, oh, that was loud, or I feel excited, or I like that, or I love that. See, I'm trying to think of what else would be helpful. It's also, we're seeing a bit of a behavior regression, which I think is just developmentally, he needs to assert himself and say no. Mm -hmm. And so not a lot, he'll set down his device and then play and try to use verbal speech. But my challenge with that is it's a lot of grunting sounds like I'm not even hearing consonants or vowels. I don't know what he means. And he sometimes gets frustrated when I have to say, you know, I'm not acting here. I'm not trying to prompt you to use your device, but I don't know what you want. Mm -hmm. um, so that's hard. And if we're getting in and out of the swing, for example, he'll get really upset when it's time to get out of the swing and he might spit, but it's not like spitting at anyone. It's just like spitting, like letting his drool drop on the floor, saying no, kind of whining, but he comes back from that really easily. So mm -hmm. it's, it's a, like thinking about the incredible five point scale, right? It's like a two or a three. It's just kind of a, uh, and, once we can get something or figure out what he needs, that goes away in a snap. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if there's any other information that would be helpful, but my clinical questions are, what can we do to reduce prompting, reduce the amount of requesting other than what I'm doing now, which is 
modeling a lot of comments in play. Also kind of activity ideas for kids who get into routines. So like, for example, the word in means we're going to swing. And if I say inside or let's go swing, it is so frustrating to him because to him it's very, that structure is there. In means swing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So how do we bump up against that frustration? How do I make communication more joyful? How do we do less prompting? And how do we do less requesting? And that's where I feel stuck. Well, I'm here to help, Sarah. Um, Okay, let's break this down. There's a few things I want to kind of go over. First, let's just talk about his spontaneous language. So Mm -hmm. what I'm hearing from you is that one to two times per session, he is spontaneously communicating something. What Mm -hmm. typically is he communicating? Trains. The word train on his device. Yeah. Okay. So he is mostly using concrete nouns spontaneously. Is that Mm -hmm. accurate? Okay. Except things like up or or in for the swing. Mm -hmm. And again, to him, I, I believe in means swing. I don't know that in could mean anything else. I've heard uh, we were playing with trains Mm -hmm. and I was like, oh, are they going to go up? Because Rocky has a magnet and he can lift another one up. And I don't Mm -hmm. know if I was just attributing meaning or if there was meaning. Mm -hmm. Uh, So up in, which only means the swing trains, Mm -hmm. which means trains and my turn, your turn, but only when he really wanted something and we were taking turns. And that Mm -hmm. is a structured skill he's learned in other therapies. Okay. So train and in. Yeah. Train and in. So the reason I'm asking you this question is because the first thing we need to figure out is the most powerful, which is what is he communicating spontaneously? So the fact that he is able to communicate train, one thing I'm thinking is like, how can we get him to communicate more about trains? So that's obviously intrinsically motivating to him. He's like, you know, many of my students who's very excited about trains. Um, So how can we, you know, build off of that strength that he's showing us Um, in regards to, you know, what do we do to kind of get him communicating more about trains? um, Tell me a little bit about the context in which he uses that word spontaneously um, and how you're using trains in your sessions. It's a request. Mm -hmm. He likes to take the box with trains and dump them out. And then he likes to not use the track and put the trains in a certain order. I think mom said it's usually the same order, but I haven't Mm -hmm. noticed. I haven't seen him long enough to know what that is. Mm -hmm. And then looking at the trains. Mm -hmm. I think that it's a really smart clinical decision to try to figure out how to get him outside of just requesting because obviously our kids get very stuck there. We know they get really stuck. You're, you know, giving him some modeled phrases. I like that. Things like that, that he might kind of find useful and interesting to communicate about. What if we figured out a way to take the word that he knows, train, and teach him how to use that word, not as a request, but as a comment. So is there anything that we could show him with trains that shifts that into, I don't have to just say trains to get a train. I can actually say trains when I see a train. Hmm. I mean, that's a great question. I don't know. I've tried books, but I get a lot of like, like that kind of introductory whining behavior, I think, because he associates it with a demand. So Mm -hmm. like I've tried a train book. It was not very successful. Okay. I could try pictures of trains. Before we keep going on, hold on one second. So there's an opportunity when he grunts. 
when you bring a book out, <laughs> right? Uh -huh. What's a la what language opportunity is is there? A rejection. Mm -hmm. No, don't, not. Yeah, exactly. So I would get really when you when you are thinking about you know what is his intention here? He's like, no, I don't want to read this book. So giving him language to advocate for the things that he doesn't want to do during your sessions could be a really good strategy. Um, okay, so let's circle back to trains for a second. Train, not into train books, okay. Train pictures, maybe. Like he could get into maybe some train stickers. I don't know. Does he like stickers? Does he like sensory things? I don't know, but I could try it. You know, there's a really great, Melissa and Doug, have you ever seen the like reusable sticker pads? Mm-hmm. That could be a really good one. I know there's. Oh, I think I have it. Yeah. Awesome. Perfect. So see I'll how he, he does with that. And again, in order for kids to start learning how to comment or use any other pragmatic function of language, we need to actually show them. Right. And so you're doing that now. Is anyone else doing that? Maybe not. Um, and so that's like part of the other challenge with this case is like, which we can talk about. How do we get the whole kind of team on board with some of the things that you're doing in your sessions? Because from what I'm hearing, you're doing really amazing things in your sessions. But the reality is you could be doing amazing things in every session. And if you're the only one doing amazing things in your session with AAC and modeling and you thinking through this lens, he's not going to make progress. That's the challenge with AAC is that we have our students with complex communication needs. And that's why the training element, the coaching element, like getting the whole team on board, I think is really important. Which I want to talk about how can we get him less prompt dependent? Because it sounds like that's a huge roadblock, which if we have kids that are always waiting for us to model language or waiting for us to tell them what to say or waiting for us to ask a question in order to learn, you know, how to just respond, then that's what they'll always do, right? There's no intrinsic drive to build vocabulary because kids are just waiting, right? Kids are waiting for us to tell them what to say. And then they go through this routine where it's like, okay, you know, she told me what to say and now I say, it, and now I get that thing. Right. So there has to be some way that we build more spontaneous language because one to two times in a session is not enough, right? Like we really want to see that improve and increase. So before, before we go down that kind of route for a second, circle back to train. I feel like stickers is a good idea. Gifts, like searching giphy.com for like some animated trains, some Thomas trains, like all the different kinds of trains, like, right. When kids have curiosities, especially autistic kids, I love to just deep dive. Let's go on a deep dive. I have a kid who's obsessed with fans right now. He's like, and knows every brand of every fan. It's like a three blade. Do you have a three blade Harbor breeze? I'm like, I don't know, <laughs> but thank you for teaching me about the different brands of fans and where they come from and how many blades they have. So yeah, I think following that curiosity. And again, we can do that with spontaneous language tracking, right? When kids are spontaneously communicating, it means there's motivation there. Um, so that's why I always go back to spontaneous language. I think also you could try videos, right? Like pulling up YouTube, that could be something really interesting. And again, we're not requesting the train video, we're commenting and saying, it's a, right? Setting up an expected carrier phrase like that could be a good way to elicit a comment. It's a train, you're modeling. It's a train, you're modeling again, right? You're giving that immersive language exposure. And then we're setting up an expected routine, right? It's a and he's most likely going to say train. And that's how we can kind of scaffold it to get, again, get more spontaneous communication. What do you think about those ideas? I'm going to try them and let you know how they go. I think they're great. Awesome. Okay. Let's also circle back to, you know, 
more spontaneous language. So he's showing us train sometimes to request. And I would argue that it's okay for kids, for kids who don't have a lot of initiation, I wouldn't get too down on yourself for the fact that he's using language mostly for requesting, because I would rather him be very frequently independently initiating with requesting than, you know, being able to follow a model or imitate a model of some other pragmatic function. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think that this makes sense where he's at in his kind of language development. I don't think there's anything wrong with getting more requesting out of him. Um, because again, he's motivated kids usually respond, you know, to getting, you know, their needs met in their environment to, you know, having power and control over their environment. So, you know, do we want to get kids out of requesting? Sure. But my, you know, listening to this whole, you know, profile of this student, my biggest goal for the student is to get more independent initiation. And then once you get that foundational skill, then everything else can build. We can build out different pragmatic functions. We can build out more vocabulary. We can build all these things. But if we don't have that foundation of independent initiation, we're not going to get very far. And we're going to have, a, you know, students who just wait for us to tell them what to say or wait for us to ask them a question or tell them to go get their talker. What do we specifically target when we do have the inner the uh, ability to interface with someone on the team directly. And I think that we're talking, let's talk about this specific student. We know that one of our biggest priorities for this student is independent, spontaneous language. Then how can we create an opportunity to get that at home and to get that at ABA and to get that in different environments that the student's in? And I think this is the key point here is that we're not choosing some blanket thing because environments are different. Communication partners are different. Motivations are different in different places. And so I would say talking, we'll use the parent as an example, talking to this parent and getting super clear about what is the one thing that your child is the most motivated by. What's the trains. one thing? Trains. Okay. Trains. And what trains, like playing with trains, like his special train toy, watching trains, like what, give me more, give me more. Uh, watching videos of trains looking at trains closely at eye level, especially the wheels. Awesome. Okay. So what opportunities are there throughout, you know, the child's day at home, right? And I'm coaching this parent. What are the opportunities where he has the ability to communicate trains in a meaningful way? And so I would get really clear with the communication partner, with the parent, what are those opportunities? And it's like, oh, well, before dinner, he always watches his train video and, you know, after dinner or whatever that is, whatever that routine looks like. So finding your routine, questioning whether or not that's a good routine, right? So if it's like in the morning when we're stressed out, trying to get to school or whatever, like maybe that's not a good routine. So making sure it's actually a good routine and then going through and, and really modeling, here's what this looks like, right? Here's what it looks like with this opportunity. So let's go through it with you, Sarah, because we don't know what the parent's going to say, but I can kind of coach you through this process with the word train. And the reason I like the word train is one, he's super motivated by trains. This is like favorite, favorite thing. And also there's opportunities there to kind of shift into different pragmatic functions and we're building off of what he's showing us is a strength, right? He's showing us that he's used this. It'd be different if it was like the word play 
and he's never used that word spontaneously and he will use it with a model, but that's not the word, right? We want to pick a word that's familiar where he knows where it is on his AAC. And now he has opportunities to spontaneously communicate it. So talk about what trains looks like in your session. Like what, what kind of situations are you in? And then we can talk about how to kind of facilitate that word more spontaneously. Oh goodness. I don't know that I do this well, but we do leave trains for the end just so that because he's newer for me, I can figure out like, what are some other things he likes? Because if Mm -hmm. we start with trains, you know, transitioning from trains is really hard. So I'm not trying to restrict his use of trains. Like he can ask for them at any time and I make it a part of every session, but it's not all of every session. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm just trying to figure out what else he likes. And he does like to line up other things like colorful magnets, like magnetiles or squigs, those little like rubber. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Whatever I know they, what are. they are. Those okay. little like squishy things. <laughs> yeah. Like you can use them in the bath and like stick them to the wall. Yeah. Um, so lining up those. So tell me your question again. I don't think. Yeah. Is. I'm just trying to figure out when trains are kind of how they're used in your sessions. So um, I think it's fine if you are trying to kind of expand his interests beyond trains. Kids definitely have specific curiosities and interests that they really do a deep dive into and we can follow that. But also I think especially autistic students, the more exposure they have, the more familiarity they have with something new, the more likely they are to develop an interest in that. And so I think it's our job as educators to kind of expose to new and different things um, to see if we can spark interest in a different area. So I think that's what you're doing in your sessions. And I think that's good. Um, I think you're also kind of recognizing he likes to line up toys. And I think that that's a pattern that we can establish and we can use with lots of different things, right? So this kind of repetitive, practice of lining things up. We can do that with lots of different things. And I think that we could, you know, expand maybe his noun vocabulary with the specific things that he would like to line up, right? So maybe it's trains he likes to line up and maybe it's these squishy things. And so again, I think that while I love core language and I think we need to model that core language for our students, I also think there's a value in being really precise and specific about the specific things that kids want to see happen and want to control in their environment. And I don't think you should shy away from those specific things um, if we can get him independently and spontaneously communicating more. And it could be easier for him through concrete nouns in the initial stages, right? So how do we play with trains. And as we're saying this, I'm like, wow, I, I'm not really. Yeah. So I would try like my first session with him. I would just ask him like, what color of, I was like, I have lots of trains. What color would you like? But over time I realized two things. One is like, he's always requesting with prompting. So I don't really want to like reinforce that or like be another place that he gets that. And number two, he loves to take the box that has the trains in it and pour out and he loves that noise so he just gets the box he grabs the trains he lines them up and i might say like oh blue is in front of red and then one of them it's like a thomas set so rocky has this big like boom arm with a magnet so he can pick up other uh trains and so we'll do like up up up. and that's not his favorite he wants to see them in line but occasionally he will use that magnet and sometimes since we're playing on the floor by a table i'll be like oh no yellow's stuck and then just um kind of knock it down and go whoa and sometimes i'll get a verbal utterance 
kind of matches that whoa, intonation. So I am getting some engagement with that. But to be honest, I'm not doing a lot of things with the trains. I think because there's a lot of this like whining and upset rejection that is how he rejects right now is to get upset. And that's completely understandable and developmentally appropriate. But I think I'm worried. Honestly, I think I'm worried about like changing up the play. I definitely don't want to like, you know, communicate temptations because I'm going to get whining, walking away and it's, and maybe it'll be hard to rejoin. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when you say you're afraid, you're afraid to transition to trains because then we're not going to be able to get any other type of play or exposure to other things. I'm afraid to have a part in his train play mm, okay. to mess it up too much or mm-hmm. to like assert myself as a communicative partner within the train play because I don't quite know him well enough to know what would be a challenge point and what would be going too far in a frustration point. I'm just not mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I think this is a valid conversation and thought process that you're going through because I think sometimes our students are very interested in their kind of routines and activities. And especially if it's something that he does a lot and is really motivated by, it could be a routine that he wants to just participate in solo, which I think we need to respect when our students want that as part of the process, a few things. One, can we find something that's adjacent to trains that he could be maybe not as interested in, but sort of interested in like airplanes or cars or something that's not a train, but something similar. I think that if we can find commonalities there and see if we can pique his interest with other things that aren't already an established routine, I think that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, it could just be that like, however you incorporate trains at the end, that is the opportunity to practice the independent initiation, right? So I think that when we have those motivating situations come up, oftentimes, well, let me ask you, what does it look like at the end of your session when you're like, okay, it's time for trains, you finish your activity and then, and then what happens? Walk me through the process. He'll request trains using his device. I'll be like, yes, yeah, let's get trains, get trains. And I'll hand him the box. It's like a plastic box with a lid. He really enjoys taking the top off, pouring them on the floor, and then ignoring the tracks and lining up the colored trains and then looking at them closely. And that's the routine. How does he know that it's train time? I do not feel like I have given him a lot of cues as to when it's train time. So, 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 and I'm just curious, like when he says trains, is it completely on his own? Is it, you've given him some type of question, you've brought the trains out. Like, what does that look like? He's, he asks during all the transitions and I'll be like, yes, we are doing trains today. Yes. Trains. And I'll model it on his device and be like, it's going to be the last thing we do. We're going to do that soon. So he's, he's asking at every transition. Mm -hmm. How does he do, how would you think he would do with some type of like visual schedule so he could see like, because many of our autistic students want to know what's coming next, right? Like when my kids eventually get a lot of language, they start learning how to ask the question, what's next, what's next, what's next, right? So Mm -hmm. I'm curious if you've tried any type of, you know, visual schedule um, to help him understand 
what, you know, what kinds of things you guys are going to be, you know, doing in your session and giving him more, you know, support in the sense of, cause it sounds like he's like every transition, he's maybe excited for trains. And then the problem with that is when you say not yet, he's like, like, mm-hmm. but when, when, right. But if he can see like, okay, like, and then we did this and he can see what's coming next. It does have to, the the challenge with visual schedules is it does make, it's a little more rigid in the sense that like you have to kind of plan what you're doing. You can't just follow his lead. Um, But I really like to include more general things. You know, if we can make the kind of visual schedule more general. Um, So for some of my students, it's like, you know, first we're going to read a book and then it's going to be a new game right? Like this idea of a new game. I'm always like teaching my students, like it's a new game. (laughs) And so it means, and it actually can create some more flexibility, right? But because I have it in the schedule, they're prepared for a new game and they're able to be like, oh, okay, like a new game. Um, So, you know, it's a balancing act. Like I hundred percent believe in following a child's lead. I think that's important, but I also think that our students, especially autistic students crave routine and structure and they, they want to know what's coming next so they can not be so anxious. Um, he wants to know when the trains come out and imagine when you're so excited about the train, but then it's actually something different. You're like, oh man. And then you're so excited for the train and it's actually not the train yet. You know, like we're creating these kind of peaks and valleys with a student's emotional, you know, experience. And I think that, you know, maybe a visual schedule could be helpful. What do you think? I think he would love that. And I think, yeah, it's, I'm just, I'm also kind of reflecting about how messy these early stages are when you're getting to know a kid, because as far as like the trains, it's like, I don't want to push because I don't know what's challenging and what's too much. I don't want to like set up the schedule ahead of time because there's lots of things he really doesn't like. And I'm not quite sure what those are yet. Cause I'm still trying to figure it out. And I think that adding structure, even when it's new. And even when I may see some rejection for some of those things, which I'm fine with being like, oh, you're saying no book. Hmm. Here's a book here. Do you want this book or this book? Or or like, okay, there's no book. We can do like a physical book, like this book or a movie book. Cause kids love watching those like on the iPad, like books or YouTube video. So I think... Yeah, I think my challenge is just like wanting to make it child-led and wanting to get to know him. Mm -hmm. And I think that I'm realizing there's some challenges in that because I do think he would do well with more structure. And I'm just not sure what, to be honest, I'm not sure what structure for a session with him would look like. Mm -hmm. So just talking out loud, I think... (sighs) what would we do? I would start with like a busy box, you know, those ones that have like numbers one, two, three, four, five, and you, you like turn or you Mm -hmm. press and you open it and an animal comes up. He really likes that. We'd watch a video of trains. Um, and as we're watching the video, I might be like train, go fast train, loud train. And I would just model without expectation and kind of pause the video as I go. Yeah. Okay. Love it. Okay. You also, again, don't forget about those carrier phrases that could be really helpful in scaffolding for students. It's a train or let's turn it on, Mm -hmm. right? Like phrases like that to build expected responses that we eventually can fade, right? Like we don't stick, get stuck there. Ready, set, 
Mm -hmm. Oh, but that emphasis and that routine and that kind of structure around language can help our students become more spontaneous and independent. Really what we're trying to do, especially with core language, is we're trying to get kids to think through that language concept, right? So when they see us, you know, opening a box and our hands on the lid, you and I think open, Mm -hmm. open it. Oftentimes, especially our autistic students are thinking box, right? Or whatever's in the box. They're not thinking through the abstract language concept yet. But when we kind of set up expected routines and we set up an expected phrase, uh, we can help them start thinking through that abstract language with enough repetition. So I'm going to use a video of trains and I already know what I'm going to use with some carrier phrases and then maybe line up time where we line up something that's not trains um, mm-hmm. like airplanes or blocks or squigs or whatever. Mm-hmm. Then we could do some like GIFs. Mm-hmm. Love it. G-I-F, not presents, but um, <laughs> yeah, like animated. Yes, animated images. Love those yeah, for spontaneous you. communication. And I, I love using Canva, so I can definitely make him something in Canva, which if you're listening, it's like Google Slides. I just really like it. So doing some GIFs and then probably doing trains. I think he would love that. I think that would be a session that would focus on, you know, things that were engaging and important to him, and it would give him some structure to know what's next. Yeah. And what's really nice is that you can set this up for him and then you can start opening up for once he understands the visuals that are associated and the activities that go with that visual, then you can open it up to have more freedom of choice, right? What should we do first, right? Many of our students want to do the same thing in the exact same way Mm -hmm. um, because they want to, they like the routine of it, right? But we can give opportunities. Should we read a book today or should we, you know, line up our, our airplanes, you know, giving that choice, you're able to weave that in to, again, be more child-led over time while also maintaining the structure that students really crave, I think, oftentimes. So I think that that's a way to create opportunities where you can still follow his lead, right? Like we can still follow his lead when we're doing shared reading or when we're lining up toys, but we also can give loose structure around it so that kids know what's coming next and what to expect. So I guess parting words are, I'm just going to kind of summarize what we talked about. It's good to have a visual schedule so that we have some structure, especially if kids are new to us, so that they know what to expect for what's next. And over time, a visual schedule can include more choices and be more child-led. One more, more, more thing I'll add there, it also gives language opportunities, right? Like we can then be like, oh, what's next? students are more likely to be like, if if we're modeling language throughout that routine, they're more likely to like say what's coming next, right? They're more likely to communicate what's happening next. That's great. And then uh, creating a visual schedule of things that are adjacent to the thing that he loves, but probably loves to do solo Mm -hmm. to expand and get more routines, more interests, and more exposure to things that he might just not know that he loves yet. Exactly. The last one is the parent training, communication partner training. For me, I'm looking at like, I've heard some great presentations by like Center and Bod and like S'mores and things like that. And I'm going to be honest, I feel really overwhelmed because I see how much research is out there that essentially says your time with the child is only does so much and really where they're going to learn to use AAC is in their environment 
And I think that can feel overwhelming, the responsibility of it, but also the expectation that when you're not in a session with a kid, when you already have a full caseload of other kids, that you're putting a lot of time into it. I honestly think I feel a bit frozen with mm-hmm. the communication partner training piece. It, fe- it feels like overwhelming. Okay. So I understand the sentiment and I understand the overwhelm. How can you get a communication partner to do one thing and do it well? Because that's ultimately going to make a huge impact. So if every time before they put the train video on at home, they're learning how to elicit that independent, spontaneous language, that will carry over for students. And so I think that that would be the focus for me is like, I totally understand, like there's a lot of work to be done, but if we can just get the student communicating trains spontaneously across all of his communication partners and environments, think about the impact that has on his ability to learn. Wow. With mom, I can say this completely on my own. And with my ABA therapist, I can say this completely on my own. And now I've had so many opportunities with communication partners who understand how to provide that scaffolded level of support, who understand when they are over prompting. Right. So it's like pick one activity and one routine for a communication partner and focus in on that until that routine gets done really well. And we see success. That seems doable. (laughs) And it could be like at the end of the session, it's like, let me show you how I'm going to facilitate train the word train. Like, let me show you. And you can do this at home and you're having, you know, part of your session, you're pulling in a communication partner, whether that's virtually or in person, you're pulling them in, but you're able to utilize your session time for that. Right. I am not advocating for us to all go do extra work um, because we already have full caseloads with full schedules, right? But this needs to be part of our treatment time. Part of our treatment time is showing a parent what to do and talking through how they can do it at home with success. Fold it in, fold in the cheese, Rachel. Do you know? That's right, girl. You know that reference? Okay. Yes. Shit's Creek. Um, we don't know how to do it, but we know we've got to do it. Yep. And we're going to we do can- it. And we can just get really good at a few things, right? Like, let's not make it too crazy in our own heads. You know, it's a, it's a really big impact when you have a student that learns how to communicate more spontaneously and independently. And for this specific student and probably many of the students that we're all having on our caseloads, like that, that one thing will make a huge difference. And then what do we do once we have trains? Maybe I'm, I'm jumping ahead, but I'm like, then what do what, I do? What's the next step? Uh, find another thing he's motivated by and do the same thing. Potentially or building into something else. With right, like a two word phrase, like up trains, go trains, stop yep, trains. A two word phrase or shifting to more of a core word, right? Like, oh, you want to play trains, right? Mm-hmm. Or you want to line up trains, um, you know, whatever that looks like that's motivating to help him specify um, to be more clear, you know, and that's where it's really dependent on the student and what they are motivated to say and how it's going to impact them. So build off of that or build into something else that is super exciting, right? Like YouTube, right? Mm-hmm. Like being able to say train YouTube, cause I want to actually watch a video right now. I don't actually want to line up my trains. Mm-hmm. So again, specifying, I think would be a really good next step. Okay. Well, thank you, Rachel. You were so welcome, Sarah. I'm here for it. All uh, the all the challenging cases that we can talk through live. 
Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of information, so it's overwhelming. And also, you know, as SLPs, we care about these students. We know that they're emerging communicators, and we want we want to start the way we want to finish, right? We want to start with really high quality therapy and providing opportunities for meaningful, joyful communication, however we can. And when kids get really prompt dependent or really request focus, it can start to feel like communication is a task and not a joy. And then communication starts to feel overwhelming for the child and they don't want to do it. So I think that's why there's just so much emotion wrapped up in this case study. Totally, totally. And I think the the takeaway here is that with our kids with complex communication needs, it takes a village. It takes a village of brains on these cases to be the most effective clinicians we can be. And don't be afraid to parse through it. Um, I do the same thing in my own practice with my own therapist. I'm like, hey guys, it's my turn. I know that like you're used to me mentoring you, but like I need some help here with these really tricky cases. We need all all the brain power we can get. And we shouldn't be ashamed that we don't have all the answers collaboratively, we can create, you know, the most optimal outcomes for our students. And I think that utilizing everyone on the team and brainstorming and troubleshooting together is the best way and the most efficient way to do that. (sighs) Couldn't have said it better. Thank you so much, Rachel. You're so welcome, Sarah. You'll have to keep me posted on how it goes. I will. Have a good day. Thank you. Bye. This is Sarah again. It's been a few weeks since my interview with Rachel, and so I wanted to share some updates. I did end up creating a visual schedule with some things the students loves. It's been trial and error for me for a few sessions. When I realized he did not like stickers, he put a few train stickers onto the track and then said, with his AAC device, all done. So I've swapped that out for gifts of his favorite train show. In a typical session, we'll watch video clips of trains, line up several colorful items like magnetiles, squigs, beads, and also, of course, trains, watch gifts of trains. And I feel like having a schedule allows my student to have new experience and allows us to together determine how a session could go. While I was trying to not do a visual schedule because I did want a more collaborative session, having the visual schedule actually has led to a more collaborative session. It means the student can point to the order he'd like to do things in or request more or to stop activities he doesn't like by pointing to the activity on the schedule and then letting me know what he thinks of the activity using his AAC. Using visual schedules has turned out to be a collaborative way to work together. He's even asked for things on his device that aren't on the schedule. They have been unfortunately things that I don't have. So I can see that he understands the schedule isn't about me, it's about us and what we want to do together. Communication is collaborative. Our sessions are collaborative. A visual schedule is a place to start to build student confidence and autonomy. It's not a rigid structure or a set of routines. I'm also finding that by using a visual schedule, we can develop new routines together with language. I'm listening to him, he's listening to me, and we can co-create language opportunities within the session as we wanna share information with each other. I'm noticing my student is happier, and I am too.